This is episode one of the Moral Money Podcast. Hi, this is Jeremy Kalin, and I'm the host of the Moral Money Podcast, a collective inquiry into how money binds our lives together and how money can strengthen our spiritual connections. This first Moral Money episode features a conversation with Rabbi Sean Zevit of Mishkan Shalom in Philadelphia. Rabbi Zevit isn't just a pulpit rabbi, as you'll hear. He's also a musician, an activist, a teacher, and a really accomplished author, including the book Offerings of the Heart, Money and Values in Faith Community. It's fitting that Rabbi Zevit is Moral Money's first guest, and that we recorded the conversation at Shir Tikva, where my family and I are congregants, and yes, members, in quotes. We'll talk about that more on this episode and later. This Moral Money Podcast project is an outgrowth of more than two decades of personal investigations into the role of money and resource sharing, into how we build communities, and how we strengthen our sense of personal meaning, not just how we build wealth, of course, but also how we build that sense of connectedness to each other. My own story is pretty interesting. I've been a village potter in the tight-knit river town of Taylor's Falls, Minnesota. I've taught crafts and architecture history in lots of different contexts. I've been a state legislator helping manage a $36 billion state budget. And for the last 10 years, I've worked to mobilize capital to advance the public good, specifically in clean energy projects. Throughout my life, I've had this abiding commitment to making money work for good and a really strong feeling that money has a spiritual dimension as well. It was through this lens I started exploring with other congregants how our own religious community of Shir Tikva in Minneapolis, we might begin to think about money differently and talk about money differently, specifically what we used to call membership dues. It's really more like tithing, a community commitment to financially support the people in the institutions, those synagogues, churches, mosques, you name it, that provide a vessel for spiritual and faith connections. I don't have a whole lot of answers myself, but I do know a lot of others who found paths that bring inspiration, provide some direction for our individual lives as consumers and as businesses, for governments working with public budgets, and of course, for our faith communities. This Moral Money Podcast project is a vehicle through which we're going to explore together how money binds our lives to each other and how money can strengthen our spiritual connections. We are going to speak, of course, with Jews, with Christians, with Muslims, with believers, with non-believers, with those who don't find a home in any organized religion. We'll be speaking with clergy and with people who sit in the pews or stand in the back. We'll be talking with those who've struggled to make ends meet all their lives and with those who are struggling how to manage wealth that they've made themselves and do so in a moral way. Along the way, I'm sure you're going to hear some of my thoughts and experiences sprinkled into each episode, including this first one. I invite you to participate in this project as well. I hope you'll visit the website at moralmoneypodcast.com and suggest guests you think will be interesting or send questions or resources that have been helpful in your own personal inquiries around money, finances, the value of work, and more. I also hope you'll download these episodes and share the podcast with your friends, families, neighbors, co-workers. And before we get started, just a couple of quick notes first about sound quality. The first couple of Moral Money podcast episodes included some trial and error with recording equipment. 
I think the sound quality is workable and I know the content is really worthwhile. And I promise to you the sound quality gets better and better each episode. So thanks for your patience along the way. Second, I found it really important to ask folks to be authentic and real in the way we talk about things. This isn't just a theoretical conversation. We want people to really open up and share their deepest feelings and feel really authentic in doing so. So from time to time, you might hear a four-letter word dropped here and there, and we'll try to give you an advance warning at the front of each episode, but really appreciate you allowing us just to have real conversations that flow and let people talk as they normally do. Really appreciate you listening. Appreciate you being part of this Moral Money podcast community. Now, on to episode one. You can learn more about Sean Zevitt, about the rabbi, at our show notes on the website at moralmoneypodcast.com by clicking listen now or on the episode tab on the upper, upper right. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoy the Moral Money Podcast. Rabbi Zevit, is it Sean? Is it Rabbi Zevit? Uh... Well, you've introduced me already, so we can take it from there. Since this is the first, I do want to offer a prayer, which is traditional in Jewish tradition for something that's a first. And it's often said that when we say Shehachianu, when we give thanks for being brought to this moment, we're also not only doing for this moment, but we're laying the groundwork that we want to recommit and come back to precious moments like this. So, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Shehechianu V'Kimanu V'Higianu Lazman Hazeh. You are a blessing source of life for us having this moment and bringing you to this day and with this insight and wisdom. And may you go from strength to strength. So you, you who are, you're the one that brought me here in this particular moment <laughs> in time. Um, I'm here this weekend honoring uh, Rabbi Deborah Rappaport, who's a friend and a colleague and who's being installed officially as the associate rabbi here. And, uh, and also um, this congregation is one similar to Mishkan Shalom, where I serve in Philadelphia, that's committed to aspects of conscious Jewish life, spirituality, activist uh, uh, you know, Judaism and social yes. justice. So I feel I'm both here in Minneapolis and also back home simultaneously. Well, so glad to have you back. And, and thank you for that uh, wonderful blessing. And thank you for the hours we were able to spend together last night with three or four dozen of my fellow congregants uh, uh, together, really starting off a, a more formal or explicit uh, collective inquiry about how money can be a deeper means for spiritual engagement. That's actually the purpose of the of this Moral Money podcast project is to have a collective inquiry together. I wanted to actually start with a question not so much about your own uh, scholarship and your own work on Jewish values about money, but your own personal values. Um, what was your childhood like? Where'd you get your values about money? What did your parents do, for instance? Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for asking. Well, I, I was born in Winnipeg, second generation uh, from all my grandparents and great-grandparents. Uh, who many of whom I knew, um, I knew all my grandparents and three of my great grandparents all immigrated from their various parts of uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine, Poland, Austria, and so my grandparents on both sides were, uh, you know, coming with uh, uh, they were they were young and they didn't necessarily come with the trade, so they had to discover that whether it was. My grandfather um, uh, delivering milk bottles and then later becoming a dairy salesman uh, for a large dairy in Winnipeg, uh, or my that was my mom's dad and my um, uh, my grandfather on my dad's side, uh, both he and my grandmother, who was uh, 
very egalitarian relationship there. Um, he was an artist uh, trained in Chicago to be uh, wow. to be a visual artist. Yeah. Came back to Winnipeg. Depression hit. Uh -huh. What am I going to do with this? And he ended up uh, being brought into hand color photos before there was color processing. Interesting. So and then he ended up having his own photo finishing business, which is what my dad that trade not particularly yeah. remaining there um you know ended up being a you know individual owner uh, one hour photos managing different photo finishing companies so and and things ebbed and flowed so in my home um certainly i felt i didn't feel scarcity but i knew that resources ebbed and flowed and and we you know our vacations were always local yeah. there was always something fun to do on a sunday but it wasn't built around um, you know, did that? How much did something cost? Or necessarily, right. family vacations in exotic locations. A lot of it was more kind of found material yes. that way and built around family and and, and local geography. What, do you remember a time when your parents taught you something ex either implicit or explicit about how to manage your money or what mm. what money meant in their lives? Well, I don't think like many people in my generation. I don't think I grew up with being taught about it was more, yeah. I remember my first day and coming to college for the first time in Toronto, and I was like, I have to open an account, or yeah. I have to, you know, so it was like, I kind of had a sense of what to do, but there wasn't the Jedi Knight, uh, you know, training yes, around right. this before <laughs> that happened. But I certainly, you know, as I reflect back on it, the values of Sadaka of giving out of sense of compassion, and also that the money didn't grow on trees yeah. type of thing and that, that we were responsible for not assuming that there would always be resources and also that it was a place of sometimes some stress and sometimes more a place of relaxation around yeah. that way so i was i was aware of that that money could be fraught as well as provide you know opportunity and and sustenance in, in that regard my grandparents, I've been thinking about how I've gotten my values about money and my grandparents uh, dropping in the, on, uh, it must have been on Shabbat, you know, right before lighting the candles, but dropping right. in something in the Sadaka box. It right. was the, I think it was the JNF Blue yes, Tin, yes, right? Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Jewish National Fund. Um, uh, and we actually try to do this with our kids a little bit, although we need to be more rigorous about that discipline. But um, did you have that experience, some sort of... Uh, Explicit Sadaka teaching? Yeah, they were there. The well, also, uh, my parents um, used some of their resources, blessedly, because uh, they certainly saved me at least a year in rabbinical school when I went later yeah. by sending me to Hebrew Day School. So certainly there was an aspect of that, the organizing of resources for some cause outside of one's, one's own specific yeah. needs. But I also saw my grandparents on both sides who were, you know, uh, neither of them were ostentatious nor were there um, was there a lot of resource you know around as well um, but certainly always felt enough so i think you know when we think about our our money and values we often think about writing a check or a cash exchange but a lot of that is attitudinal that doesn't necessarily mean it's transactional right so when i think of my dad um during a, a period of years where he managed out in calgary a photo finishing plant and employing people from vietnam who had skill but couldn't speak English, um, having um, women who were uh, assistant, um, you know, um, VPs yes. in the company, and you know, and 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 you know, wages and thinking of of sick leave and a variety of things like that. You know, my dad has never been one to profess I'm doing this, and here's the textual quote or the actual Jewish value. 
but I certainly I could see what was inculcated that yeah. way. And so there was a, a sense of resources that were also a place to allow opportunity for equity and, and justice. And not everyone always knew I was the boss's son. I would deliver some of the photo finishing yeah. of it and I would hear comments um, that were sometimes not pleasant things to hear yeah. about him because why was he giving these quote people fill in the blank these opportunities. So I also felt there was something about the resources and taking a stand with them that I felt I got not from any ever an explicit conversation yeah. along with like you said the tzedakah and the communitarian aspect or the Israeli bonds and various things you know like yeah, that right. that were, were you know for investment yeah. and um, did you feel a calling to become a rabbi uh, do you remember that moment when you or was it just sort of just this kind of like this is uh, who I am and the natural yeah. thing that I do a sense of calling and being involved with with a vocation of meaning was always there. And my connection in the Jewish community, which ebbed and flowed, but I was involved with starting a Chavra in Toronto. And so when there wasn't anybody that was stunned, I think, yes. when I said I was applying for rabbinical school. Did you was, stun yourself you know, or not? It doesn't sound like you did. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. I used to teach a course in a theater school because I also did consulting for organizations. And uh, it was a course on self-expression and creativity and self-presentation for business people taught at a theater school. But yeah. the curriculum was mine that I developed. And I remember, um, I guess I must have been 32 at the time, uh, finishing one of the courses. And I never owned a car in Toronto. Um, I never felt I actually had to. If I needed to borrow one, I was able to. The transit system allowed yeah. that. And I never... There was never any uh, thing about that. Like I never heard anyone comment or ascribe that my taking transit and not owning yes, a right, car was right. somehow any less sort of than judgment about right, class or money. Right. right. So when I th that's an aspect of it too that classism plays in. At any rate, so we were driving back. Um, I got a lift with this one participant that night, and as she was dropping me off, she said, "You know, I know what you were doing in this course." And I said, oh, really? I hope so. But what do you mean by that? She said, this was not just a course about technique and, the, and exploring the creative part of self. This was a deep spiritual journey on how to bring the soul into what we're doing. And it turned out that she had thought about being a minister much of her life and had never gone through with it and felt she had somehow missed the calling. And I walked upstairs that night after that encounter, couldn't sleep all night yeah. and said, I'm going to be... You know, she was 52 at the time. I was 32. I'm going to be 52 talking to a 30 or 22-year-old yeah. saying, what if? And that's when I felt like even though the resources were tight and I wasn't sure how I was going to make this. And there wasn't like, you know, oh, I'm just going to ask my parents for money or anything like that. Um, you know, I just felt that there, this is where I wanted to align, that I needed to step into the what if. Yeah. Even if I didn't know where that path would lead me. I don't know if this is sequential for you and where you wanted to go, but when I think of big surprises, I would say getting involved in the area of Jewish values, yes. money, community, um, you know, nonprofit, larger organizational world, uh, and especially when I was asked to write a book about this yeah. matter, that certainly caught me by surprise. It's not something where I said, this is an area that I really want to um, delve more into, end up teaching and, and consulting and training people in. But what emerged... Um, you know, in the late 1990s was a burst of consciousness around spirituality in the workplace and aligning values with organizational yes. life. 
And so I got involved with um, the first couple of Canadian conferences on that subject matter, national conferences, and then later connected with a network of people who were looking to align their values, their money, their profits, and for the greater good, uh, at the same time that I was actually still in rabbinical school. And then when I uh, graduated uh, RRC, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical School, um, and then actually a year later got private ordination uh, from Rabbi Zalman Schachter Shalomi of blessed memory, uh, who was like the, the grandpa, the Zeta of the Jewish renewal yes. movement. Um, so uh, my first job, I was hired out of rabbinical school to be the director of outreach and started a, learn, a uh, leadership training program for lay leaders and clergy of the movement. And so, okay, I've got that background in, yeah. sorry, in theater and arts and um, consulting and training. Here's an opportunity for me to align that which I uh, had with uh, spiritual value, you know, religious community, leadership organization, and so on. Um, and I also taught at University of Toronto and at Temple University interpersonal and organizational communication. So what's the subject matter? What's the number one thing on everyone's mind? And at that time... Um, the Reconstructionist movement was going through a birth and people were building buildings for the first time, uh, yeah. kind of moving out of the rented spaces and having, having been somewhat iconoclastic and mistrustful of the, the main line with a capital M and L yes. attitude towards that in religious community were wrestling with how to stay true to values, but also suddenly realizing no, we're not just the students in the dean's office with a sit-in. We're now the dean. Right, exactly. And like, how do we manage these responsibly or the resistance to that? So that kind of propelled me into developing and organizing uh, Jewish resources, best practices, and developing a training program for, for people to go through that process and then to better align their resources, their values, leadership, mission, and vision. If my uh, timing is right, this is really the early maturation at the same time of the social responsible investment um, kind of into a practice of some sort, very loosely organized, but the same concept of how do we align our values around money right. and people, planet, profit, the triple bottom line idea really, uh, I think Paul Hawken uh, kind of yeah. burst out of the scene in the mid 90s with a couple of books that really talked about uh, the triple bottom line and that's uh, right when you were it's in the it was in the zeitgeist <laughs> right right, right so time, it came out right? of that culture exactly. expression. and when yeah. you think of well our listening audience wouldn't necessarily have had the experience but the workshop that we did yesterday around exploring what are our upbringings how did we yes. come to our attitudes around money and values how they might then influence our choices when we're working in a faith-based or non-profit or corporate government all these different places it's always just below the surface and then we tracked, uh, you know, the fact that we're not the first. Often we're in this, I think, in, in contemporary life, the sense of individualism and we're the ones struggling with this as opposed yeah, right. to what, what in our lineage, what in our history, what are the best practices? And so we explored from the, you know, moment of leaving Egypt to the first uh, um, capital campaign of building a sacred tent yes. dwelling and so on, all the places that we have uh, navigated and um, come from a basis of not separating the business of community building from being, you know, responsible with business that way. Yes. I mentioned that because I think of when I first started to explore more just within my own uh, pension and savings portfolio, what uh, socially responsible index funds, you know, and, and shifting stuff over, what really struck me was those 
uh, the, how little difference there was in some of the other portfolios with the socially responsible that's right. index. That's right. So that the companies themselves that were mission-driven, responsible for their people, places that people want to work, product that was beneficial to people, the environment, um, you know, generated itself that way, were many of the same companies that qualified for all of the social index funds. Yes. So if we don't think of this as the separate category, like money and values is some like new age thing or right, just some right. altruistic effort, it actually is... It is the triple bottom line. I want to talk a little bit more in detail about that, but I don't want to. Um, you, uh, but first, I want to go back to the point you were just talking about um, that I think is at the core. You know, if we uh, if we want to drill deep into what does Judaism, what is our lineage, what does our our liturgy teach us about money, and and you know, there are some very clear edicts on charging interest and this or that, but from a values based perspective, not just the mechanics. You've written about, you uh, spoke last night about kind of four basic teachings from the Torah. Um, and not to pin you in and I can lead you along if you need to in the four that I observe, but, you know, starting with the kitise, the, the half shekel, right. Um, right. And, uh, and moving through, you know, if you could maybe just uh, riff a little bit of, sure, on sure. what you've learned, what you've drawn, what you point to yourself about what Judaism teaches us about these values of money. Well, let's let's take this the macro satellite view for a moment before any particular uh, piece, because if we only look at one aspect, we're missing the fact that multiple uh, ways of input or gateways, portals to um, living a B'Tselem Elohim living in the divine image. So we go back to the creation of humanity in the Torah and that aspect that we are the embodiment or the reflection of that divine potentiality is itself already at a, you know, a basis and needs to be yes. honored in that regard. And then when we, we go through the matriarchs and patriarchs, um, even how Abraham nurtures relationship with his nephew Lot, and when there's resource conflict, and they decide, no, it's okay, you know. Instead of no, you, I brought you out in the family business. We left Ur of the costume, and now we're in this Canaan place, and you should stick by me, and you know, etc. No, it's oh, okay. So there's growth taking place. Well, why don't you spin off and you start a new satellite operation there? Because that's because our people are arguing and competing. Yes. With each other. And that's not going so well. I was reading about that in terms of Sears contemporarily, how they're suffering from having spun off and made every department responsible for bottom lines and found now the managers are competing with each other instead of holding the larger vision of Sears as a company. Yeah. And so that idea about having a shared value set, but having one's own particular place. And, you know, and that spins out. And then when we get to the birth of our people leaving a place of oppression, isn't it interesting that um, that our our own story and history and history, uh, you know, focuses on okay to be free means to now have to take responsibility to manage one's resources, to manage one's calendar, and to create a community and people and navigate a pretty difficult situation. We didn't like oh we're broke free and now we lived in an oasis. We actually went from a place of, of, of oppression and restriction and enslavement into an open desert, which was not terribly sustainable to human life for these many years yeah. and had to figure that out. So let's create a center that embodies our values where we can collect, build around, pitch tent, de-encamp, etc. And first of all, let's make sure everybody is in on this. So the half shekel idea. Um, which is 
uh, it's like me saying to you, okay, everybody is in for 18 bucks. Let's a minimum ante up. So psychologically, I know that if I have more or less resources, I know that everybody has pitched in, right? And then there's Nadiv Lev, which is the free will offering, time, skill. Maybe I have some extra resources to give, but I can, you know, I can swing a hammer. I can do something else. Uh, and then if I have more resources, I'm given the opportunity to tithe. Yeah. Uh, so that you know the people who are doing sacred service could not be owning class. So the only way they would live or survive is by that extra. And then if I'm graced to have abundance, I don't use it all for myself. Pay. I leave something behind that way uh, in order for those who are who don't have those resources. The rounding can, the corners of the field. Exactly, right? and then those folks can pick. You know, there. And in fact, as we see in the Book of Ruth, they're protected group of people so that they you know it, they're not supposed to be messed around with and it's a sacred thing to leave that so it's not knocking on the door as i experienced a couple times coming here today can you spare some change yeah, or right, at the intersection right. of the highway but i'm literally would be then oh i've got two dollars do i need all that no i'm gonna drop in a, a bucket on the highway 50 cents because anybody whose needs could come and get that and uh i've often the rounding the corners of the fields it's one of the, it's a truism at this point but the notion that we don't you don't harvest uh the entire field and then drop off uh on correct. your way to correct. Right, right. Uh, to give your own offering or to right. the market but you leave it so that the dignity of work uh some is the dignity of work and some is also the challenge of work so right, that right uh, i'm still picking can, up even though i'm not one of your employees that way but i have to i have the the sense of being able to collect right. for myself and and then the other piece those are four kind of gateways to how some consciousness was built around community and resources. But then there's the idea of tzedakah, you know, which um, uh, you know comes from the root of justice and is different than charity. It's not mm -hmm. I'm giving because I feel good about it, even though that's a byproduct. I'm giving because it's the right thing to do. And I'm wondering even uh, this notion of of being. Um, exiled from the Garden of Eden, where there were limitless resources and, in essence, limitless time. We could live forever and eat of the tree of life to uh, being kicked out, but not really uh, kicked out, more having to deal with the fact that we are, um, our time here is limited and our resources then become somewhat limited as well. Right. And, and to grow. I mean, on one hand, yes, you can think of it as being exiled from, and then there's the fiery sword the no return zone kind of like in the rental car like yeah right, punctured right, tires right coming exactly. back over yeah but or i watched i watched field of dreams uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. in the last couple of days and you know the moment when uh, doc graham when moonlight graham crosses over and right. can no longer go back and be the baseball player right 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 right? Exactly. <laughs> right so there is a there is a dividing point but it's it's also a place of an arc of spiritual formation and maturity yes. that way. So that even though now my hands are kind of dirty and the birth of life has pain to bring forth life uh, in that process as, you know, as our ancestors were imagining the why, like why couldn't we state in that Edenic state? Let's not even talk about a place, but more like that image of where everything is being provided. Well, because we stay childlike as a result of that where God is our parent and dresses us in a variety of things. And suddenly it's us having to, to right. take responsibility. Right. Immediately met by a conflict over resources that costs a life. So wait, we can't just let it happen. We actually have to not only harvest and manage, but we actually have to bring in a sense of justice and equity and deal with inequities within our society or there's gonna be dire consequences. Yeah. 
um, money actually doesn't have meaning. It has meaning that's been projected onto it. So if I don't know, like the gods must be crazy, this old film where yes. the Coke bottle falls from heaven and is seen as a divine ordinance. Uh, you know, if I tear up a dollar in front of us and that's not something of meaning, you know, it does. If, if somebody doesn't share that meaning, the dollar doesn't have implicit meaning in and of itself that way. So the aspect of how, am I, how is my, my legacy, how am I living uh, my life, uh, how do my purchases represent or not represent in a, in a, in a congregation organization, mission statement on one column, uh, uh, income and expenses in the other. And when, you know, let's do an exercise and see is who we say we are or trying to be mm -hmm. in the world aligned with how we both take in and then spend money. And when I work with faith communities, or organizations, um, even corporations I've worked with in this regard, um, you know, that they will look at this and go, wait a minute, we're all about justice. And in fact, well, we spent $43 on that right. last year. We're the lifelong learning community and, oh, we don't have any childcare or, or right. any education. Right. You know? So I think if we follow it back, you know, I can ask you what you believe about this material, but I can also say, can you show me your life and can I trace back and say, ah, that's the value set. That's the sole connection to how this is expressed in life. Um, so how does this play out at Mishkan Shalom at your at your congregation? I assume that you're involved in the budgeting process. Mm. Uh, at, I think as most lead rabbis are at some point, while, while also recognizing that the lay leadership and yes, the, there are the and professional staff that really just what right doing. and you know and sometimes there's a healthy response there. Other times it's actually really good for the one of the things I'm hoping that we continue to do here at Shutikva is to have the rabbinate continually involved in conversations about money, not about you know, Zevit family, what's your pledge this year? And right, right. I, I know you can give more, but more, uh, what are your values about and where does Shirtikva sit as a sacred community that we want to sustain and grow um, and, uh, and want to provide even more resources and do more tzedakah in the world? Mm -hmm. um, so I have to imagine you're pretty intimately involved in some of those conversations, but what does that budgeting process look like at Mishkan Shalom? From your perspective, and might, what might a congregant say about it? Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting. We worked hard this year, and with with deep gratitude and blessings to our former treasurer and our current treasurer, who worked as a team and continue to work uh, as such, along with the executive and the board, of course. And there's there's pass bys that way, input from staff, uh, but to make things coherent, transparent. Look at the categories. Were they clear? Did we understand where? Things were flowing in and flowing out. Um, you know, did they? Did the categories we have, and as we communicate them to the community, articulate those values in a way that people could understand? That wasn't so buried in forty-three line items that people could understand. Oh, that's where it's going, and have the visuals, whether it's just the pie charts yeah. or other things. And I mention that because the feedback we got from this year's meeting was the clearest, most understandable, and appreciated presentation of the budget that people had seen, uh, you know, up until that point. Yeah. And like Sheer Chikva, we're about 30 years as well, um, you know, into this. And we're in a 150-year-old former factory building, so it's not a typical synagogue structure. We have rental partners, a school for kids in foster care, as well as a church. That, Interesting. You know, so we work in that regard and, and intersect with, it's not just the building that we live in. We have partners in that yes. regard, and we have to do that dance. Uh, around things. So uh, I think there was a, a push for greater transparency. Um, the board welcomed uh, as we build towards a new campaign, 
me doing some teaching for the first board and we talked about even in the uh, the ask phase yeah. of things to have Jewish values text teaching discussions such as we're having now as part of that as well as people identifying what what is really of meaning in the community uh, and I would say and this might be controversial for some clergy within the Jewish community and outside that I do feel it's important for all of us as spiritual leaders to be involved whether it's Make, being a, a, a gatekeeper check on the values and the budgeting, or in this way, teaching about right. what our tradition has to offer, being part of the public discourse in that way. Um, like I always contribute, even though I'm a salaried person in my community, I contribute to all fundraising events. Um, because first of all, I want to, I want to call forth abundance in my life. Uh -huh. So if that means I have to spend less discretionary elsewhere, but also, I think it's very important that people know I'm in with them, right. even if it's a right. nominal amount that way versus I don't deal with that area, which then f what it does, if you don't teach or get involved in the conversation, even if you're not doing an ask, for example, um, you know, uh, that what it communicates is, oh, that the business of the community and the spiritual or soul of the community are divorced, right, things. exactly, right. I mean, I think that there is a... The sacred and the profane, you know, need to not have this, not be two magnets that never meet, but need right. to have a okay. conversation back and forth. It's interesting. Um, By uh, the way, just because you said that, historically there's no word for spirituality or secular or, or in that way in Jewish life. There's categories of pure and impure. Right. Right. But right. that idea right. that, that the divine wouldn't be in something, quote, because it's secular or that I'm doing the laundry and therefore I'm not spiritual is, is a more of a you know, Hellenistic or dualistic concept that's entered the discourse. Thank you for that, because that's really, that, that gives voice to, some, to a, uh, the core feeling that's kind of motivated this project and motivated a, a long conversation that we're maybe in the, the late toddler years to kind of <laughs> going to kindergarten. Uh, from my perspective here at Shirtikva, having a, being a maturing congregation that because it's a, a sacred community that really embodies radical hospitality where people want to be and where a simple pledge model hasn't uh, achieved the financial sustainability writ large that we'd like to see. Um, uh, but we're, you know, the, the uh, Rabbi Rappaport deserves a lot of credit for bringing, choosing to, to ask you to come for this conversation to celebrate her first decade in the rabbinate. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the perfect time. Our membership, uh, um, communication used to say, I don't know if you uh, uh, know this, if somebody's shared this with you until a couple of years ago, it said, nobody likes to talk about money. And but just seeing it. This pledge, uh, uh, but but yeah, then, yeah, yeah, but then please fill out this pledge. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. uh, the board initiated this revenue task force to look at how we raise money. And I think as a whole, we are continuing to come around this idea that that they're not divorced, that we do want to talk about money, but we want to talk about it uh, not just in a give more, <laughs> but in a do more, be more, be more conscious about it, um, and to make that shift from scarcity to abundance. Because I and think that, it's that really needs critical. engagement as well. I mean, it's the only way to do it, right? Talk, it's organizing. You could pay you know, $10,000 to a lead fundraiser to come in and mm -hmm. give you a, a session, and they will say, build relationships. Exactly. You know, are we having these discussions and saying what not just 
can you contribute, but what's your vision? Right. Well, here's what really touched me. Well, this is why I'm here. Why are you here? What will these resources allow us to do and achieve this part of the greater vision that we have? And that may include the roof is starting to decay. We need that right. you know, to pull together for that. But then, as we discussed last night, do we just fundraise then to meet that expense? Or do we say, we're in this position now, and what we could instead of just patching the roof, we could also benefit from a new educational you know, wing that way. Right. Go outside of our own building. One community I worked with, um, one of the board members said, you know, we're a progressive community. We're in a downtown urban center. Maybe we're not the only ones that wants us to be here. And they raised $180,000 from other local businesses, faith communities, other people who said, oh yes, having you in the center of the city helping us reclaim and having a statement of values that way. I want to be in on that too. Yeah. You know, we have such a generous congregation here that uh, that first looks outward rather than at the just at Shirtifa. And I even saw some of this last night. You might recall that uh, a couple of uh, folks in the workshop being captivated by, the, by this idea of saying, let's add 3% or add 10% to, right, right. To our, for something outside. And in some ways that that pressure is there from day one from, congreg from congregants to be more engaged in the community and to, um, to not always think about Shirtifa as just this institution that needs something more than just the base because I'm giving to, to, uh, you know, to AIDS organizations and I'm giving to homeless shelters and I'm giving to all these other places as well for my direct giving. Right. Um, but you just articulated something that I think I, I'm going to chew on and talk to others about, um, which is thinking about the next decade or the next generation of Shirtikva congregants that need Shirtikva to be here or a version of it uh, to be here for our children or for uh, for those who uh, our particular uh, shul, I think, is very much a place where people who didn't feel like there were other places that felt as home, right. um, whether it's uh, lesbian and, and gay Jews 30 years ago, or uh, my family's always been committed urban city Jews. Right. Um, and interfaith families. Interfaith yeah. families, absolutely. Jews right? multicultural or yes. you know, biracial or multiracial roots. Right? Yeah, I'm going to keep yeah. thinking about this, though, about asking to think about Shutifa as a priority because of other people, not because of what I get out of it, but because it needs to be here for other people. And so, therefore, I can... I mean, it really is this cultural essence of... Yeah of this incredibly generous people collectively that are, is our congregation. Um, well, it doesn't exclude you either. And the fact, when you right. talked about the generosity, I mean, there there are some stereotypes out there. and There's always, you know, um, uh, you know, personalities in the mix. But by and large, what's interesting is that the Jewish tendency towards tzedakah, philanthropy, has remained very strong. But what's interesting in the modern analysis is it's not just coming to one synagogue federation in the Jewish right, community. Right. So particularly for younger Jews, um, you know, even some who may not or do have resources. So to say, oh, well, people are, they're not giving anymore. No, that, that Jewish muscle is still being exercised. But I may be spreading it over, which I struggle with too, yes, 30 yes. organizations instead of 10 yes. and not automatically giving only to one place and then whatever's left over but being more equal in giving. So we also have to make a um, compelling case for ourselves yes. and be clear what it is that we're asking for, where is it going transparently, and well, with, with all respect, I don't mean necessarily like everybody's um, you know, a contract is on a right, PDF right, on the website right, or something, right, yes. but have just have a sense of 
um, you know, why we're, we're doing that and remain a compelling place to, to both teach about money, resources, spirituality, values, but also be a place that people see that that's an integration, that yes. they have that as a model for life as well. Yeah, and I think that this conversation shouldn't be about just raising money for Shirtifa, it really, or, or Mishkan Shalom, or anyone else. It's about raising, uh, raising our own values around money for our own lives and the individual choices we make. And, oh, this place happens to be an important place to invest in right. because I'm at what I'm getting, but also I know that it's the kind of conversation that I want all Jews to have or all people to have, right? And that's certainly right. a case that we're working on for ourselves in terms of, you know, we were made for these times for sure. And yes. how do we sustain so that we not just only appreciate that that's happening or the building that we're in, but like our, um, I remember a contemporary of ours visiting one community who really challenged everybody who were saying, well, I'm not so sure, whatever. And they said, listen, my great, my great grandparents built the synagogue. They came like, what are we talking about here? Do we right, want right. this to be or not? You know, and they weren't talking about building a building. They were talking about fundraising for a rabbinic salary in, as a next step for them as they were renting space. Because if I just build it for myself, people come in and they go, oh, that's great. This is here. Right, it's done. Look it's at this of building. Right. It's wonderful. I don't have necessarily an emotional ties or investment to that way. I didn't leave Gan Eden and have to roll up my sleeves from, yes. from the Edenic place and grow the carrots. The carrots are served on the table. How wonderful, I'm grateful, etc. But there's a different emotional content to that. So I think of you know assessing what are our needs, being transparent, articulating how's the money coming in, how's it going out, but also here's what we would need to keep this alive yeah. and let's embed some processes for that. Well, as, as we do move forward, I know we're, we're coming in for a landing here. Um, just to think, I, I so appreciate both what you're doing in other parts of your life, but that you brought us to that place because when we look then internally at our purchasing potter, power, what products are we buying? What, yeah. Are we doing local, organic, fair trade, which is an area we're looking into right now? What's in the cleaning supplies? Just all the way that we do. Um, uh, I remember Rabbi Zalman Schachter, a blessed memory, uh, you know, passing on to me that someone was... Um, you know, he was raising a point. The person said, well, we need to get to the business part. Like we're done with the spiritual aspect. And Reb Zeldman said, okay, all right, but tell me what business are we in? And so, you know, so, <laughs> exactly. the person to, uh, so we don't, That's we don't great, shy, great question. we don't shy away from exactly. the business, but do we know, cause believe it or not, like the car companies and the, and all the marketing and all the rest of that yeah. are very clear and are looking at their branding and their targeting. And, and we need to also be, savvy that way while still coming from our values and also looking what are we investing in in the planet you know that yes. way what banks right. are we leaving our money and what are they doing uh you know is there you know a fair wage a living wage being you know paid that way where did this chocolate yes. come from uh you know as uh, we talk about we're finally free from slavery while enslaved kids produce the chocolate that we're enjoying right now those for me are money and values questions that's not just alum. And, and that'll really, I think, for the sake of Judaism having a future on a sustainable planet, you, at our peril, we separate yes. those, those yes. questions. I think that um, we've been blessed by a, a U.S. senator that uh, represented our great state, Paul Wellstone, who right. uh, uh, said, never separate the lives you live from the words you speak. And in many ways saying, you know, uh, act out your values, uh, be who you be the change you would like to be. And I think on this question, it's a, it's a good challenge. 
You talked about generosity. You've been very, very generous with your time and your teaching and your experience. And I want to say to Daraban, thank you. I have two questions to sum up. Okay. And uh, I have a closing blessing since we started with Yeah, uh, you bet. You <laughs> bet. Uh, so the first is how can people find you? Uh, website, social media, what's the easiest way for oh. folks to learn more about Rabbi Sean Zevit? Well, I have a, a website, uh, Uh And finally, um, uh, importantly, and you kind of alluded to this before, what's in your wallet? Uh, what's in my wallet? Oh, he was paying attention. The Jedi Knight has come back to test the master. <laughs> it's interesting. There are there are pictures there. There's a lot of cards of people that I've picked up. There's a certain amount of cash, uh, you know, a couple of checks that way, and organizations that I belong to. So you know, there would I also have a you know whether it's the um, Alzheimer's Association or the Amnesty International or this, this. So there's some of those cards that I kind of put in there just to yeah. remind me in, the, in that regard, you know, like what's what's in that collection. And to be um, genuine about it, I'm going to check a little bit more based on your reminding me of the question just to make sure that if my wallet is discovered somewhere that I would feel that, that I, I have been discovered, not just resources. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. This has been a real blessing and, and what a gift to sit with you at this moment and auspicious moment in time, whenever this ends up, you know, being sequenced or not. And so I just want to end with the, um, in the tradition of our people to offer um, a blessing after teaching uh, and um, uh, the Kaddish de Rabbanan, the Kaddish, which ended up migrating when people have lost a loved one in their memory, started off as a a prayer of honoring great teaching. And then when the teacher started to die, then oh, well, let's say it for their life. And then as Lawrence, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner says, everyone has a Torah of their life, not only the Torah that is our text. Yes. And we, we, whatever we're able to complete in our lifetime is that Torah that we, wow. we offer. So for our teachers and our students and the students of our students, we ask for peace and loving kindness. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you, my friend. Well, folks, there you have it. Episode one of the Moral Money Podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. You can learn more about Rabbi Sean Zevit in our show notes at moralmoneypodcast.com. I hope you'll share this podcast. I hope you'll download episodes. And I hope you have a great and prosperous week. And we catch you next week on the Moral Money Podcast. <laughs>